I made a big mistake in trying to pursue a master's degree that was not a good fit. And the only reason I was doing it was because that's what everyone else was doing. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode and the interview with our best ever guests, I want to mention FundNetFlip because FundNetFlip is an online lender that gives you fast, convenient access to really affordable money that you need for your flip project. So if you're doing residential flips, then the main thing I imagine that you're focused on uh, or the main two things are the deal and the money. Uh, So if you've got the deal pipeline, but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a, uh, a group that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Uh, the, the founder of Fund That Flip is Matt Rodak, and he's actually one of my very first guests on the show. It's episode number seven. Um, so if you have a chance, go check that out too. familiarize yourself with Matt and um, what he's all about. But when you're needing money and you want an online lender that provides fast, convenient access to affordable capital for your flipping projects, then Fund That Flip's the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt. And uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. Uh, so go to fundnetflip.com forward slash best ever and get some money for your flipping projects. Hi, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless, and we've got a very uh, interesting episode headed your way right now. We actually have a best ever guest who started out his investing and is starting out his investing through joint ventures, which is something we don't typically talk about as often as we do other stuff. So I'm excited to talk to our guest. Um, And if you're new to the show or if you're a loyal listener, then um, either way, I want to give you a quick reminder. This show is all about cutting through the fluff, getting straight to the best real estate investing advice ever that moves your business forward. We've talked to Barbara Corcoran for Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki from Rich Dad Poor Dad, Tom Wheelwright, who's Robert Kiyosaki's CPA, and Jay Papazan, the author of many of the best-selling books with Gary Keller, the founder of Keller Williams Group. And today we've got with us Harry Brodsky. How you doing, Harry? I'm doing very well, Joe. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure, my friend. Harry is based in mild stomping ground, New York City, New York. He's investing in that area as well as New Jersey. He's the host of the popular podcast, Founder Grind. And with that being said, Harry, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on? Sure. Be happy to. So right now I'm kind of focused in uh, different verticals, one of which is real estate investing in the New York area, specifically through joint ventures, um, as well as New Jersey. I help people with their internet marketing needs. And I host my own podcast featuring great entrepreneurs such as yourself, who I interviewed a few weeks back on my show Founder Grind. So I'm keeping busy, real estate, internet marketing, my own podcast. So definitely keeping busy. So let's talk about the real estate and the joint ventures that you're working on right now. You mentioned to me before we started recording that you've got an interesting way of starting out. Typically people, at least from what I've, what I've read and what I've seen and people I've spoken to, start out either using their money or borrowing 
money, you know, through hard money, through family, friends, whatever. But you're taking a different approach. How are you taking your approach getting started in real estate? You know, Joe, that's an interesting question because I've had an interest in real estate for quite a while. And, you know, I've looked at different ways of getting in. And because I'm located in the New York area, I really wanted to focus on investing in properties that I could see, that I could be next to. So, uh, you know, as you know, the New York area is a pretty expensive area to invest. And I, I, I don't know if I thought to myself specifically that this is the best area to invest in, but I knew that I wanted to get started. And I knew that I wanted to get started um, as soon as possible. So I knew that the way to do that would be to to connect with people who were interested in investing this area in this area as well and seeing if we can do anything with that. So what I did was I had friends and colleagues who also wanted to invest in the New York area and we started by pulling our money together and investing foreclosures in the Brooklyn market. So that's that's how we got started. Who initiated that? So basically you're doing a joint venture with your friends, right? Correct. Who initiated that? So I have a good friend of mine who really, really got his hands, you know, he really got involved in uh, first. And what he did was he started meeting with brokers. He started meeting with uh, with uh, different people who are, who are knowledgeable and he started learning. And in, in parallel, I was learning about the real estate in- industry myself. He told me about this deal that he was interested in. And it was a foreclosure, and it was in an area that is up and coming. And it made sense from a financial standpoint because the deal was pretty good. We had a good connection with the broker who presented us with the deal, and uh, we moved fast and we bought it. So he was the one who got involved first, but I was learning it in parallel and you know, we got to talking uh, because we both had, we both shared the same interests and made, you know, made the deal happen. All right. Let's talk about that. But real quick, I want to talk about the structure that you have with your friends. Is it a deal by deal basis where you own an LLC, you each own certain membership of an LLC that owns a property, or do you have a company where you've all joint ventured into, and then that company's buying stuff? It's the individual LLCs for now. Okay, so you got individual LLCs. So uh, it's a property by property basis. And how do you have it structured with your friends? How many friends are in it, and how do you, you know, how do you determine who does what and who contributes what? So we have four people involved in the LLC, and in terms of contribution, it really, uh, it really was dependent on the financial involvement. So I. I'm not the majority holder of that deal, so my involvement is really, from a capital standpoint, um, the people who have a little bit more at stake, they're the ones who are involved, uh, you know, more of the day-to-day. But anytime there's a repair need or any any CapEx uh, requirement, we're all in based on the percentage that we're invested in. Okay, got it. So you've all got a certain percentage based on the amount of money that you put into the deal. And then if something goes wrong, like a capital call, then each of you have to put in whatever percent and amount based on the percent ownership that you have, right? Correct. That's what we agreed upon. 
Okay. And and since other people have more money percentage wise than you in total dollars into the deal, they're taking on more responsibility because they've got more to lose and more to win, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. So let's talk about the deal then. You've got you you mentioned it was a, a deal that you you all couldn't pass up. It was a good opportunity. What was what specifically did you buy, and what's the business model for it? So the business model, and I know that a lot of people are not a fan of it, and I just want to reiterate my. This should be interesting. I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> I, I, no, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. The, I, I want to reiterate that I wanted to get involved as soon as possible. But I didn't want to get involved in a bad deal, not by any means. So what the deal play here at hand is basically a buy and hold strategy. The area that we invested in is gentrifying very, very quickly. Uh, you, you, you can see kind of the, you know, the, the coffee shops pop up, pop up in, um, in uh, close by neighborhoods. What's the area? It's East New York, Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of media that is actually covering the neighborhood. So it's a buy and hold strategy. And the reason why, so we bought a two family unit in that area at foreclosure. And the reason why the deal made sense from, at least from our standpoint was for two reasons. Number one, we were getting the property at a foreclosed price. So, uh, kind of below market value. Number two because of the things that are happening in the area, you know, we kind of talked about it and said, what's the worst case scenario? So we, we kind of thought, all right, well, you know, if we do lose, not that we're planning to lose, but if we do, it won't be everything. So why we thought it was a good deal, because it's an up and coming area, because we were able to get a good price for it, and, you know, kind of like what Warren Buffett says, uh, you know, his rules, rule number one, don't lose money, rule number two, don't forget rule number one, we thought at, at worst, we're not going to lose much, if anything. So that, that's, that's really why we thought this would make sense to purchase. What were the numbers? So the unit was put on the market, so we got it for around $240,000. The listing, you know, the uh, market value was a little closer to $400,000. So that, that's really, that, you know, we crunched the numbers and that's, that's really why we uh, went with it. Is it one unit out of the two-family unit or is it both units? It's both units. It's a two-family house. A two-family house. Cor- okay. Correct. Got it. It needs a lot of work. It definitely needs a lot of work. But again, you know, being that it's a foreclosure, given the area, what's happening, that's why we thought it would make sense to purchase it. How much in dollar amount is the work projected to cost? We are estimating at around fifty to seventy thousand dollars. We have to put in a new boiler, we have to repair we have to repair the staircase aisle, we have to kind of, you know, put up some new walls, but around that much, yeah. Okay. So about three hundred and ten thousand dollars all in. Yep. Yep. Market value after it's repaired, you're saying is close to four hundred thousand, yep. right? Yep. Okay. And how long do you think it's gonna take? For the repairs or for yep. Repairs, you know, we're uh, right now we're talking to different contractors. Re- the repairs should not really take that long. Uh, we're probably estimating it around maybe six months at most. Uh, but yeah, not nothing, nothing too long. And once it's repaired, and once you have it ready to have resident, well, first off, are there people who who are living in there? No, there aren't. No, it was okay, so yep. to- totally vacant. Yep. How much do you anticipate renting it out for? 
So, you know, that's one of our strategy plays is that we're actually going to hold off on trying to fill the units with tenants because of what is happening to the area. So, you know, there is a speculation play in part, and it could be, you know, it's it's going to be a good learning experience either way. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, Joe, my long-term uh, desire is not to get into the speculation part of the real estate industry, but to be a buy and hold investor. But again, I wanted to get involved as soon as possible. And this was the easiest way to do it. So right now we've all agreed upon that we're going to wait about a year before we even start considering trying to find tenants. I'm a little confused because you mentioned it was a buy and hold strategy. But in my mind, the buy and hold strategy is you bring in people to rent after you fix it up. But are you looking to, but since you're not doing that and you want to wait a year, what are you doing in that year? Are you trying to sell it? We are going to, no, we're not going to sell it. So we're going to hold it. We're going to hold it vacant. And when I said buy and hold strategy, I I really meant from a standpoint of we're not going to sell the property. We're going to try to fill it with tenants, but just not immediately. Why? Because we think that in a year's time, we can get higher paying tenants. Okay. So... You're fixing it up, yep. and in six months, it will be ready to be move in, mm-hmm. but you're not going to lease it. You want to, you're going to wait a year because you think you can get better rents over the course of, if you wait for one year because of the market. Correct, correct. And, okay. and a, a reason for that is that New York is notoriously tenant friendly. It's not very landlord friendly. Big time. Big so, time. so we want to make sure that we are leveraging the most we can once we fill in, once we uh, put in tenants. And another reason for that, or for our strategy is because the neighborhood that we're, we've invested in is not the greatest area right now, but it's, it's getting there and it's getting there quickly. The last thing we want to do is get anyone in there who might have problems paying rent, and then it's going to leave us in a problem, especially from the immediate standpoint, and then the future when you know we anticipate uh, higher rents in the area. So we're taking a gamble. We're going to wait a little bit. Not too long, but we're going to wait a little bit. Keep the unit vacant. It's still a buy and hold strategy because we are hoping for the appreciation to to really come up there. And you know, if when the appreciation uh, comes into play, then we're going to start talking about selling that unit. Okay, got it. Yep. All right, very interesting. Yeah, it wouldn't necessarily be an approach I would take, but I understand the logic behind it once you explained it with the you know the it getting being so hard to get people out of the apartment, especially in New York City after they're living there because of the heavily favored tenant laws. Or the laws are heavily heavily favored toward the tenants. Okay, yeah, we've, interesting. We've, we've you know I've I've seen cases where, and and it's kind of crazy. It's 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 really it's kind of crazy that uh, you know I'm not I'm not knocking tenants. You know <laughs> I've been a tenant, uh, you know in my life uh, I understand the uh, need for uh, tenant rights 100. percent But uh, sometimes New York kind of makes my head scratch from a owner standpoint where I've seen people live in apartments, not pay rent for months or close to a year, get evicted, and then keep on doing that over and over and over. And with the current administration that we have here, it's even more tenant-friendly. Again, I I do believe in tenant rights. I I don't want to say that I don't, but there there are cases where people 
have and do take advantage of those laws. And we want to make sure that we are not victims of, of those types of situations. And what type of rent could you get if you leased it after the repairs? And what type of rent are you looking to get if you wait a year? So right now, we're looking at market rents for, for, uh, in that area, and we're projecting that for each unit, we could charge around fifteen dollars to $1,700 a month. After, you know, we're hoping that once the area kind of picks up a little bit, we can raise the rents or charge rather definitely over 2000 a month. Okay. So we're talking a difference of maybe uh, if it's 2000 then a difference of 300 per unit, so $600 a month. That's at minimum because we've seen, so, yeah, we've seen situations where uh, rents were at fourteen, fifteen hundred one year, and then two, three years later, they were they were around twenty four, twenty five hundred dollars a month. Uh, that that that's how New York City functions. And what are the holding costs that you've got on this property? Uh, so we have, of course, the insurance, uh, the insurance costs, the uh, the taxes as well. But other than that, it's it's not it's not very costly at all. Okay. Yep. So basically, you all bought it for cash, and the cash isn't making money during those holding period during that holding period. But your plan is for it to make money um, either a year after through rents uh, or through appreciation and selling it. Correct. Yes. Interesting. Yep. Huh. Yeah. That is a very interesting approach, my friend. Yeah, I'm telling you, it, <laughs> I, it, it, you know, it's, it's at minimum, this is going to be an amazing learning experience, but, yes. but agreed. <laughs> if anyone is interested, like they could Google East New York, Brooklyn and just read about, you know, the, uh, uh, New York magazine did a whole, whole, like a huge expose about East New York and what's going on over there. Uh, there's another publication we have here, a daily circulation called AM New York. They, they, uh, recently did a, uh, a big article about how East New York is gentrifi- gentrifying at a very rapid pace because all of the, uh, all of the other areas that are convenient to live in are, have been essentially saturated. So you have a lot of people who are moving into, you know, moving into New York City. New York City is still popular, still a desirable yeah. area to live. And they're looking for other places. And East New York happens to be one of those places. Yeah. No, I, I think I, per, you know, I know East New York and I, I personally would never debate that it's, it's not a growing area. It definitely is. My reservation with the approach is that you're the opportunity cost of waiting a year, you know, you're missing, it's a difference of $600 a month at minimum, right. but we'll say best case 800 to maybe a thousand dollars a month difference. But the, what, what you're, you're losing out on over that, that year could be, you know, 1700 times two and times 12. And obviously that's just the money coming in. You have to deduct the expenses, but that's, it's the money that, that it's being missed out on. Under totally get New York rentals are very tenant friendly or the tenant friend the, the laws are tenant friendly. But I think that just goes back to just screening the right people because regardless of how much you charge in rent, you're gonna have to screen properly. So it doesn't matter if it's someone who's paying seventeen hundred or twenty seven hundred. If they're screened properly, then then you can mitigate that. You're never gonna eliminate it. Just my two cents. You know what? You're you're absolutely right. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna debate you on that. The thing is that 
because I'm not the sole, you know, I'm, I'm not the one who's making all the calls here. You know, we've had a lot of debates on this. It's just that's what was agreed upon. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that uh, of just getting started in whatever capacity you can. I know for a fact that going forward with other deals and maybe not necessarily in this area, but going forward, I wouldn't necessarily do that. I would definitely take the approach of finding a good property or an undervalued property in a good area, fixing it up, and trying to rent it out as soon as possible. I do operate under, under that school of thought. However, given the availabilities um, you know, in terms of resources, time, and what was available, and how quickly I can get in, this was the path that we chose. So you know what? I'm, I'm a kind of person that even if it's not the best – yeah, how do I phrase this? Even if it's not the uh, the best deal or the best opportunity in the beginning, but if it's your first and it's a way to get in there and educate yourself and learn how the market works, how an industry works, that's why I did it. I, I yep. kind of got into this. A, a big piece of this was for the experience, the learning experience to help me going forward. But I agree with you. I mean, the strategy of just uh, find, you know, trying to find an undervalued property, fixing it up and trying to rent it out as soon as possible and, and holding onto that property, that's, that's a good strategy. I'm not, I can't say that it's not. It's just, uh, you know, this was the opportunity that presented itself and yep. it's going to be an interesting ride. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think that gets to the learning from, from this episode. And I usually summarize it at the very end, but um, I'll just briefly mention it and then I can talk a little bit more about it at the very end. But that it's a joint venture. And that's what those are the pros and cons of a joint venture. You don't have as much control depending on how it's drafted. But you also are able to participate and learn and um, in some cases, you know, influence in other cases, kind of just see on look on the sidelines, but having, you know, you have a very close up view of what's going on and it's, it's part of the experience. So I'm, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. It's going to be extremely beneficial and valuable for other investors and, and the best ever listeners who are, who are listening. All right. What is your best advice ever for real estate investors? I would say it's get educated as much as you can and just kind of get involved in whatever capacity you can because, you know, I I know people and I was one of those people, which is the reason why I did this deal, that I kind of just sat on the sidelines. I got sick of sitting on the sidelines and I just wanted to get involved. And my advice is just learn as much as you can. Things are never going to be perfect off the bat. And if they are, God bless. I mean, you know, a lot of people, when they start anything, there are a ton of mistakes involved. You know, like right now I'm learning a new language and I'm messing up constantly. That's okay because I'm getting experience with real estate. This might, you know, there might be things that come up from this deal. That's okay. It's going to be a learning experience. Even with my podcast, when I started, it wasn't the best, it wasn't the most well-produced podcast. You know, I was making a lot of mistakes. I wasn't, you know, there were a lot of pauses uh, in my interview style, but just doing it got me to be better. So my advice is learn as much as you can, but not enough that keeps you, that it keeps you side, uh, on the sidelines for too long. Learn as much as you can and then take some action. Love it. Love it. Love it. You ready for a best ever lightning round? Absolutely. All right. First, a word from our best ever partners. If you need money for your flipping project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever book you've read? The uh, Millionaire Real Estate Investor. Best ever personal growth experience and what'd you learn from it? 
Best personal growth experience. Wow. Um, I've had so many of them, but I think, I think my first ever job because it really got me exposed to, you know, it was a job at a financial, major financial institution and it really showed me the value of process. And it's something that I kind of uh, did not enjoy, you know, didn't even want to get involved in while I was a student, but being put into the corporate world, it gave me a really good appreciation of process, scheduling and whatnot. So I think that definitely helped me. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? I'm excited about both my real estate endeavors as well as my podcast. And what's the best ever way you like to give back? That is by talking to really bright people such as yourself and being able to kind of funnel amazing information to other people because I get a lot of value with what people like you do and I want to be able to do that for other people. What's the biggest mistake you've made so far in business or real estate? It's actually kind of a hybrid. I made a big mistake in in trying to pursue a master's degree that was not a good fit. And the only reason I was doing it was because that's what everyone else was doing. And I lost a lot of money doing it because I kind of realized in the middle that this was not a smart play. So I kind of let my ego at that time dictate me going to school. And then I realized that I, you know, it was not a smart move and I lost around. I lost a lot of money, and uh, but you know I didn't lose as much as I could have. So you know I learned a valuable lesson that not to let your ego make your decisions. Do what's prudent. Do what do what makes sense. How much did you lose, and how much would it have cost to get just complete the masters? So I lost around forty thousand dollars. It hurt. It hurt bad. And how much to complete it? It would have cost me uh, with interest uh, altogether and opportunity cost probably around. $200,000. Well, just the opportunity cost is in, in my mind a little fuzzy. Like what, what's just like the total dollar amount that it would have cost to complete the tuition the, the program? It was, it cost you 40 to get to a certain point and then how much to complete it? It would have cost uh, an additional 120 to complete. 120. Yep. Okay. Yep. And at what point, what was the trigger point where, where you said, I'm not going to be plunking down 120. I don't think it's worth the return that I'm going to get and I need to eat the 40. It was when I started seeing what people with the degree were actually doing and then kind of seeing uh, what the market, what the, you know, how, how much the market valued the degree and it didn't really come anywhere near the amount of tuition. And it's, and those, and you know, I was, I was in my mid twenties at the time and those were questions that I've, sh- I should have done my due diligence on prior. But again, you know, everybody was going for their MBA. It was a, it was it was an ego play, uh, and you know people were telling me I should, and I didn't really question things. And uh, you know I learned, I learned that you can't let e- you know your ego drive your decisions. You have to you know I'm not saying that it it doesn't make sense to get an MBA or a master's. It didn't make sense for me because I knew what I wanted to do and I knew what I didn't want to do, and it didn't make sense for me to, to get a degree that would put me in a in a career path that I had no interest in, like investment banking or whatnot. So for me, it didn't make sense. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a good learning experience, you know, and I, you know, I ate the cost, it hurt, but I learned that next time I make a decision, it has to be because of, because it makes sense and because I'm going to get something out of it, not because it's the thing to do. What's the best ever place for the best ever listeners to reach you? They can go on my website, foundergrind.com. That's F-O-U-N-D-E-R-G-R-I-N-D.com, Foundergrind. And, you know, they can email me at harry at foundergrind.com.
Harry, thank you for being on the show and sharing your insights, your experiences, and your mistakes that you've overcome with the Best Ever listeners. This truly was an episode that had a lot of learning surface whenever we were, we were talking. And I'm really grateful that we talked about your joint venture, the pros and cons, because we not only just talked intellectually about joint ventures, but we talked about the pros and cons of a particular deal and the strategy and kind of what you grapple with as someone who participates in a joint venture with other business partners, in particular, having different positions within that joint venture where you've got certain responsibility based on your ownership and others have certain responsibility based on their ownership. The pros, you can get in to an opportunity that you might not be able to get into otherwise. The cons uh, would be that you, uh, since you have partners, you have more people yep. involved with more opinions. I mean, it's just, it's it's obvious, but I'm glad that we went through this example just to illustrate a couple of those points. And also, boy, your best ever advice is, is great where it's okay that it, things aren't perfect. And if, if you think they are perfect when you start something new, then you're kidding yourself. It's, it, you're, it's not So you really need to take a look in the mirror and have a self-assessment and increase the self-awareness. Things won't be perfect when you first start something. They won't be perfect when you start real estate venture. They won't be perfect in your case if you start an internet startup. But over time and through consistent action, just doing it, that's where you execute. And I was just listening to a Gary Vanderchuk video and he's like, everyone's got a good idea. Good ideas aren't, aren't what you get paid for. It's execution. Yep. You know, we, we could sit in the room and brainstorm 50 good ideas, but who the hell cares? It's all about the execution and the consistency that you, that goes along with that execution and the pursuing the master's degree. I, I didn't expect this little nugget to surface either, but, <laughs> uh, and, and boy, that's a visual. I just, I just created a visual that I want to move away out of my mind with nuggets surfacing. <laughs> but I'm thinking of my little, uh, my girlfriend's dog right now, but <laughs> when you're talking about the master's degree and it wasn't a good fit in identifying it and just cutting your losses and you mentioned the opportunity cost and boy, is there ever an opportunity cost? And I wanted to get to the numbers, but now that you've mentioned the numbers, the opportunity cost is something definitely to, to keep in mind too, when we get down a venture and we have to, we have to just remove ourselves from it. It's important to, to take notice of how you approach that thought process. So thanks so much for being on the show, Harry, well, and sharing your advice and, and spending some time with us. And we'll talk to you soon. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much.